Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who were with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Good evening, everyone. It's nice to be back. Yay. I have a funny story. This morning, my daughter's reading the Bible, so I'm really proud of her. And I'm watching her read this thing as we're sitting back there in worship. And I look down to see what she's reading, and it was Song of Solomon. <laughs> and so I was thinking, oh man, what questions am I going to have to answer tonight? And she, she seemed like really interested in it too. She was just like going, I was like, oh no. And I looked down at what section she was and it was something about body parts and you know, all that stuff. I was like, oh man. Anyway, you can be in prayer for me and that she's asleep by the time I get home. That would be helpful for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your apostle Paul who uh, wrote this for us. And we ask the Holy Spirit that you would speak through your word this evening to us. In Jesus' name, amen. This is what we call an epistle. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul that if we were to sum up this letter with one word, many would summarize this with the word freedom, that this epistle is about freedom. Uh, This evening, we're just going to take a look at the introduction of Paul's letter here. And, And when looking at an introduction, we typically look at these main questions of who, what, when, where, why, how. Uh, We won't look at every single question, rather we're just going to focus on a couple of them. We're going to look at who and we're going to look at why. And so under who, we're going to look at who Paul is and who he wrote the letter to and why he wrote it. So verse 1 gives us a description of Paul. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now this introduction that Paul wrote in this letter is different from the other intros that he wrote in his other epistles. So for example, if you look at Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, it starts out with this really nice flowery intro. I'm just going to take snippets of it, but you're going to get the nuances of this kind of niceness that Paul here wrote. Ephesians intro here, and it starts with, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, I'll be skipping around, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So really nice, right? And then if you go into Philippians, he starts out with this really sweet introduction. To all the saints, I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. I hold you in my heart. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's pretty nice. And then you go on to the Colossians where he wrote to the city of Colossae and it has this pleasant intro here. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So in those three letters, just these really nice, pleasant introductions. But when we get to the letter to the Galatians, there aren't any of these pleasantries. Right, Paul just kind of cuts to the chase. He gets to the point. Now, why did Paul write the letter like this? 
Well, Paul was really concerned with what was going on with the local churches in the region of Galatia. He wanted to make it really clear that he was just going to get right to the point and no fluff, he's just going to do it. And we do this too in emergencies. Right? When there's an emergency, we don't waste time with the fluff. Right? There's no fluff. For example, when you were a child and you were taught how to cross the street, someone took the time to hold your hand, to tell you to look both ways, to, and, and if, if you were in London, actually, they tell you which way to look. Right? You look down on the street and it tells you look left or look right. And I just find the English so hospitable because on their public transit, like our BART, it's just yellow th bumpy things and then a drop. Whereas in London, it's mind the gap. And they tell you to mind the gap. And anyway, the English do some things right. You were only to proceed down the street or across the street when things looked safe to cross, whether that signal turned green for the pedestrians to cross or a, or a crossing guard held up a stop sign and said, all right, guys, come on over, or, or traffic stopped for you at the crosswalk, and whatever it was. And there was time to go over all these instructions, right? So look both ways and all this kind of stuff. And they addressed us with terms of endearment. So they would be like, Honey, dear, pumpkin, munchkin, babe, precious, lovey, sweetie, uh, make sure you stop a few feet and, and when cars are coming, you know, and press the button and all this kind of stuff. But there is no urgency in the instruction at that time because everything's good. Everything is controlled. There's a lot of space. But the more urgent the circumstances, the fewer the amount of words used. So that if you were several yards away and you're a caretaker of a child and they're several yards away, you would say something that was like, honey, be careful, stop. And so it's a lot fewer words. And if they were just about to go, my daughter, we were at this little carnival fundraiser thing on Friday and she was running down the street and she didn't see this driveway and this car was coming out and I just, stop! That's all I had time to do. Right? It wasn't like, honey, stop. It was already there. I only had time to say stop. And so there's no term of endearment, even though I love her very much and I care for her. It's just too urgent. I, I don't have the time. And so this is kind of what's going on with Paul with his letter to the Galatians. This is really urgent. And he's getting across to them, stop. So none of the pleasantries that we find in the other introductions to those letters, because this is a serious message that Paul is trying to get across to them. He's extremely concerned for the Galatian churches like a caretaker would be for a child running into the street. And there isn't the time for him to go through all these nice words. It's only stop. So who were the dangers to the churches in Galatia? Well, there were these false teachers who were there, who were misleading these newer believers, these newer Christians, to think, to believe that salvation was different from what Paul taught. Paul taught that, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That's what he taught. But these guys were twisting it a little bit. These guys were saying, you know, that's Paul guy. He told you these types of things, but did Paul tell you that you had to be circumcised? Because you got to be circumcised. Now, if you're an adult male and you just came to Jesus and these guys come to you and say like, hey, by the way, um, you got to be circumcised. You'd be like, uh-uh, no, no, I'm not doing that, 
right? But then these guys are saying, you got to do that in order to really be a follower of Jesus. And so they were adding these things, and they were adding these other types of mosaic rules that they were saying, you really need to follow these sets of rules in order to be a follower of Jesus. And so they introduced this sort of contradiction as to what Paul taught, and consequently had people questioning the authority of Paul as someone who was able to instruct them in the ways of Jesus. So Paul saw this emergency that he needed to address, namely the violation of freedom in the lives of Christians. And so this issue of freedom in the lives of Christians is the battle that we battle today. It's, it hasn't gone away, really. Right? So we have folks who are kind of on both extremes of this kind of freedom pendulum. We have folks who take these liberties way too far and they treat it as a license to do whatever they want whenever they want as long as i'm cool with god i'm not going to worry about what other people are dealing with or whatever i i'm good with it so that's that and then you swing to the other end and and so on this side you have people who have liberties for different experiences but their liberties are actually a list this much and their restrictions are like long and so they have these overly restrictive lists of do nots and so the letter to the Galatians actually addresses both of these extreme camps, and Paul's purpose was to address this sort of tension between a no-boundaries liberty and this overly restrictive liberty. And Paul wanted to make sure this freedom in Jesus was not violated, and what he taught was indeed from Jesus. So he addressed them by offering his credentials. And it's not like the credentials you and I would think about because you and I would probably think about, oh, what school did you go to? Who did you get educated by? And what kind of job did you have to give you the experience to do what you did? So if that were the case, Paul would have wrote something like, I was educated in Jerusalem. I was taught by Gamaliel. And I wasn't just a Pharisee. I was part of the Sanhedrin. So essentially in our modern day terms, I graduated from Cal. I had Nobel laureates as my professors. And I'm not just a lawyer, I'm a Supreme Court judge. And so I have all these credentials, but Paul does not do that. Paul doesn't do that at all. He actually points to something totally different. What credential does Paul point to? I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle. Now this brings us to the topic of apostleship. What is an apostle? Well, let's first take a look at who an apostle was in the eyes of someone who was familiar with it at that time, at Paul's time when he was writing this, in a Jewish worldview. Because if we were to define it in today's terms, we would simply define it as an apostle's a messenger. They're just a messenger. And you would be correct if you would simply use that as the definition without any attachment of it being a special messenger. Because back in the Jewish mind, back in Paul's time, in that context, an apostle was a special messenger, a person who was given a prestigious and distinguished standing amongst other believers because they were charged with power and authority from God. Now Jesus used this term apostles as a distinct term from disciples. You look back to Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his apostles and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. 
Right? So the 12 apostles chosen were amongst a ton of disciples. There were a bunch of them. He spent all night praying to choose which one out of the slew of disciples were going to be his apostles. And Jesus differentiated from the apostles and the disciples, and they were given this distinct status with Jesus. What Paul is saying is, I was added to that group of apostles. And Paul lets the Galatians know about this in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. See, an apostle is not from men nor through men. Now, why did Paul bring this up? Because people were questioning who Paul was. Who's he? Who's he to tell you guys what to do? Who's he to tell you guys what to believe? I, like, I, I was educated too. I went to the synagogue too. I got educated also. So who's Paul? And so Paul pointed out, I'm an apostle. I'm a special messenger from God. Not someone sent from man. Not someone sent from an organization. I'm from Jesus Christ. I'm from God the Father. Now how do we know that Paul didn't just make this up and he just kind of said, I'm from Jesus Christ. I'm from God the Father. So listen to me. Because can't anyone else just do that? Well, so we have to take a look at Paul's story. And we have to take a look back to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. And this is Paul's conversion story. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him four letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul didn't write the book of Acts. The book of Acts was written by Luke. Luke is the author, and Luke was one of those persecuted, or would have been persecuted, by Paul. There's no way he would have written this about it if it weren't true. Ananias would definitely not be his advocate if he did not receive a word from the Lord to help Saul get his sight back. If he did not hear from the Lord and he heard Saul was blind, he would have been, great, keep the guy blind. And like, hey, Saul, I believe in the way. 
like, try to get me, right? He would not help him out. But here, Luke records this story for us. Ananias is saying, yeah, God told me this thing. And so this is Saul's conversion story. And it's only by God that he's meeting Jesus here, that he is becoming an apostle here. And he even gave the followers of Jesus an opportunity to question his apostleship. And they knew that he was indeed an apostle, so we don't hear any rebuttal to his questions. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, Paul asked, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Now, why would Paul ask these questions? And specifically, why would Paul ask, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Because that's a key to apostleship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-8, through 8, Paul wrote, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. See, all apostles have seen Jesus. Paul saw him on the Damascus road, and that's why Paul wrote there, as to one untimely born, because Paul wasn't there with Jesus prior to Jesus' death. Jesus appeared to Paul after the resurrection on the road to Damascus, and there he was commissioned by Jesus to be an apostle. The apostles were distinct followers of Jesus. They were set apart. They were special messengers. So when someone today comes up declaring that they are an apostle, be careful. Be careful about that. Figure out what they mean by that. Do you mean that you have a new word? from God for us? Well, what do you mean by that? Because there is no such thing as an apostolic succession in that the apostles could pass on their apostleship to their children or to their followers. It wasn't theirs to give. Only God decided who the apostles were and He gave them that commissioning. He gave them that charge. Now sure, we can be committed to apostolic teachings, but only God determines who an apostle is. So you can't just go out and say, like, I'm an apostle. Says who? An apostle is different from other followers of Jesus. That's why Paul wrote of himself that he was an apostle. And then in verse 2, he wrote, and all the brothers who are with me. And what I think Paul was doing here was setting himself apart from those brothers, that the others were brothers in Jesus. They were disciples, but he is an apostle. Now, why does this apostle stuff even matter? Because the Scriptures, the Gospel, depend on this. They write on this. This is really important stuff, and let me try to explain. If Paul wasn't an apostle, then what he wrote is just an opinion. And if it's just an opinion, you can just take or leave whatever you want. If Paul wasn't an apostle, we don't have to take his teachings as Gospel truth. We follow his teachings because he's an apostle, a special messenger from God. So does that mean anyone who is an apostle is writing God's truth? I think so. 
But the real question I think needs to be asked is, are they really an apostle? Now some would argue that apostles just means witness. So when someone says, I'm an apostle, all I mean is I'm a witness. I'm a witness who was sent. If that's all they mean, fine. But if they mean I bring a new truth because I'm an apostle, because I'm an apostle and I'm the witness of Jesus today and I've been commissioned, sent by Jesus to proclaim his gospel today. And just like Paul was back in his day, Paul was an apostle then, I'm an apostle for today. And so I have this new truth. Big red flag. Big red flag. They may be an apostle in terms of a messenger commissioned by God, just like in the Great Commission, but they do not have any apostolic authority. Now, if we believe that these people have different apostolic ages and they can just come and go as they please, and we have modern day ones and ones back in Paul days, then we we get into arguments like this. What Paul wrote was truth for his day, but we have apostles who give us truth for our day. And what was written back then really doesn't fit with us today. So we don't have to submit to what Paul wrote back then because we have apostles today who teach us. So we're going to read Paul's teachings as an appropriate teaching for Paul's time, but for our time, we have our own apostolic teachings. So we see his teachings and we can set those aside, but we want to submit to our own teachings. Be very careful, church. See, we have all these additional books, whether it's cults or other religions or anything like that, they have these additional things where the scriptures are being irreverently mishandled by some people today. And people who claim that the Bible is outdated and the Apostle Paul is out of touch with our present day society, so we don't really have to pay attention to those things, and who claim that we don't have to pay attention to Paul because Paul's not Jesus. And they like Jesus. We like what Jesus had to say. We like what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. We like what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Those are the types of things that we want to really embrace. But the things that Paul wrote in his epistles about like the role of husbands and wives and sexual immorality, you know, all this other stuff, that's archaic stuff. That doesn't fit into our society. So we don't have to follow that stuff. That is not an authority for today. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Paul was an apostle. And what he wrote is God's word. The apostles of Jesus had a unique relationship with Jesus. They experienced the historical Jesus in that they literally saw him. And Jesus literally commissioned them to be authorities of his teachings. It wasn't a figurative sighting of Jesus. It wasn't a metaphorical commissioning from Jesus. The apostles were literally inspired by the Spirit of God in a special way where God set them apart for a particular work at a specific period of time. And it was an actual, specific, unique time in history when Jesus imparted his authority, convictions, opinions, instructions to his apostles. And therefore, what the apostles recorded for us in the Bible are the very words of Jesus himself. So a person who claims that they are fine with Jesus' instructions, but they aren't okay with apostolic doctrines like Paul's, they're off base. That's false. What the apostles recorded for us are Jesus' instructions. So as followers of Jesus, we are to submit to the apostolic teachings. The apostles were given divine authority, divinely inspired, giving us our Bible. And it's not like the Bible is a choose-your-own-adventure book. I like this part, and I like that part, and I don't like that. By the way, I love choose-your-own-adventure. Those are my favorite things, and I'm going to read one when I get home. 
But we can't treat the Bible that way. In verse 2, And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So this is who Paul wrote to. The churches, plural, of Galatia. That's very different from addressing the church in terms of a general universal sense, which Paul does in verse 13 where he wrote, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And in verse 13, Paul addressed the church in a universal sense. But in verse 2, Paul is addressing those in a particular time and in this particular place. He specifically addressed the churches, plural, of Galatia. Now this is significant because the church universal was shaped by the early local churches. Now you think about this. The instructions to the early local churches were not too far removed from Jesus himself. Some of those people were alive to see Jesus at that time. So they were very close to the source. And being so close to the source, you know, it's kind of like the game of telephone, right? Like the further you kind of go along, the further something kind of gets misconstrued or something. But these guys are so close to the source. And that's something that's just so incredible about our Bible. That you go to the earliest sources, whether it's Dead Sea Scrolls or now they have these Egyptian masks that kind of predate some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you're finding that word for word they are being copied and it's just like our Bible. So it, it seems like the telephone game is not really working for our Bible. Our Bible is really going back to the source pretty well. But you think about this. Not so far removed from the original sources and these early churches are who provide us with this early church structure of church discipline, of order, of church polity, of government, all these types of things, all these topics regarding churches established early on. And so we can look at the early churches, churches such as Antioch and Pisidia or Iconium or Lystra and Derbe, all found in Acts chapter 13 and 14 and what is today modern day Turkey. And would love to take a pilgrimage back there again. The last one we did was seven years ago. But to trace the steps of Paul and teach at all these sites. And this is the region that he's talking about. The churches in Galatia. And this, he was writing to the various churches in Asia Minor. And he wrote this, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the start of Paul's message and why he wrote to them. He leads off with writing grace. Now this is a customary greeting, but it's a really meaningful one. Grace is the beginning of salvation. Right? God giving us something really good. Giving us His riches, something that we don't deserve. It's completely at His expense. Grace is the unmerited favor of God upon me. And if you and I got what we deserve, that would be called justice. It would not be called grace. But He gives us grace. Romans chapter 5, verses 6-8. through 8. Paul wrote this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows us grace. And the result of receiving this grace from God through faith is peace. Through God's grace, by faith, we receive peace from God. And only then may we truly have peace with God and with ourselves. Grace and peace. Now that pretty much sums up the gospel. Right? Grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 4, Paul described the historical event of how Jesus delivered that grace and peace to us. What did he do for us? Verse 4, who gave himself 
for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Jesus delivered us. He delivered us. He plucked us out from the present evil age. He drew us out. He rescued us. Now how did He do that? He gave Himself for our sins. He chose to sacrifice Himself for us. Now, we would think someone is absolutely crazy if they died for us if they didn't have to. If they just simply came to you and said, I love you so much, I'm going to die for you. You'd be like, you're psycho. Get away from me. Right? Can you imagine some guy that's interested? You're like this attractive girl. Some guy comes up and I love you so much, I'm going to die for you. You're a freak. Get away from me. <laughs> right? Why would you die for me? You don't even know me. Right? That would be silly, right? But if someone said, you know, I'm, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to run into that house of, that's engulfed in flames. You'd be like, you dummy, don't do that. What for? I'm right here. There's no reason for you to sacrifice your life. That's silly. Now, it's completely different if they did that and you were inside. Right? That's, the purpose is totally different. That they would risk their own life to deliver you, to save you, to rescue you from death. From this house in flames. And so this is what Jesus did. He didn't do it purposelessly. He's not just dying for the sake of dying. You're in a burning house. And He is going in to rescue you. And He gave Himself for your sins to deliver you from this present evil age. And that's why He did it. And this is what Paul was reminding the Galatian churches about. You and I are sinners who without Jesus, we are destined to an everlasting separation from God. Which is hell. That's hell. Right? We try to paint this picture of pitchforks and pointy tails and horns and a guy stabbing you with a red cape or something and burning hot and flames and all this kind of stuff. Essentially, hell is eternal separation from God. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's not so bad. Who, who cares about that? The Bible tells us that God is love. So you will be in a place absent of love. You will be in a place absent of forgiveness. You will be in a place absent of grace, absent of mercy, absent of relationships. Because God binds all those things together. That's hell. And see, God does not want that. He does not want you separated from love. He does not want you separated from relationship from Him. He does not want you separated from the forgiveness, the grace. But the thing is, God's not a bully who's going to force you to accept that gift, and He's not going to force you to reciprocate that gift. Therefore, there's an element of justice as well, because it's not just grace, grace, grace. It's, there's an element of justice. Because if you don't want to be with God, He's not going to force you. But if you do, since He is a just God, our sins pronounce that we are guilty of separation from God, and that has to be accounted for. There has to be justice there. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus graciously sacrificed Himself so that you can have eternal life with Him. And He paid your price. He took your death penalty. Now you might be wondering, can't someone else take my death penalty? No. If you were guilty of first-degree murder and you were sentenced to the death penalty, 
no matter how much your mom and dad, brother, sister, cousins, no matter how much they love you and they plead and they go to the judge and say, I'll take his place, let me do it. I'll be the one to pay the death penalty. You know, he's young, I'm older, just take me. No, it's you. You're the one guilty of the crime. You're the one that's going to have to pay for that crime. And so the courts do not allow that. It's not the law. And it's the same thing with God as the judge. He doesn't allow anyone else to take your place because if someone else takes your place, who's going to take theirs? And if someone takes their place, who's going to take theirs? That's not justice. You have to pay for your own sin. So how do you break that cycle? You either pay for it yourself or God provides someone for it. God provides someone for it and He provided His only Son. It's His law. And that's His provision besides you paying for the penalty yourself. His provision in the law is I will give of Myself. I will give My Son. John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believed in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Don't we misquote that sometimes? There's no condemnation. There is condemnation if you don't have Christ. That's the converse of that. Because he has not believed in the name of the Lord, of the only Son of God. Jesus also said this in John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way. Not a way, the way. And the truth. Not a truth. And the life, not a life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus was sinless. And he took your sins upon himself and he suffered death because of it, he provided a way for us to be looked upon as righteous by a holy God. Jesus delivered us from our sins. He rescued us. Now let me continue reading on in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. While we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, Jesus. Right? He didn't wait for us to kind of get friendly. While we were enemies. So if you're lacking in peace, in freedom, in joy, Perhaps you're an enemy and you're on the other side of the enemy line. But that's where he wants to reconcile. He's not waiting for you to cross. He's already extended that grace. He's already extended that to us. And I'm not saying that if you cross over and say, I accept Jesus in my life, that everything in your life is just going to be hunky-dory and you're going to be absent of troubles and all this stuff goes away and you'll be filled with peace, freedom, and joy all the time because everything in life is just going to be good. That's just not true. Right? Actually, we will face challenges. Look back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. It doesn't say out of the present evil age. You're going to be in it, man. <laughs> You're going to have those troubles. You're going to have those challenges. Right? We weren't told that we weren't going to be delivered out of it. We're just going to be delivered from it. But the thing is, He's going to be with you. 
traveling with you along life's challenges and even though all this chaos may be surrounding you, that peace that God gives, that freedom, that joy he has to offer you, that will be accessible to you. Something to keep in mind. You don't have to try to get everything right in your life before submitting to Jesus. Actually, that's a pretty bad formula because it just never will happen. Right? And you look at the story of Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was this tax collector who was cheating people out of their money. And Jesus sees him and invites himself over to his house for a meal. And get this, you read the story in Luke 19. Jesus wasn't the one who told him, you know what, give your money to the poor and all the people that you defrauded, pay them back four times. Jesus didn't instruct him any of that. He did that on his own. That was his response after Jesus' invitation. See, the grace of God changed him and he received this peace and this freedom and this joy. So don't be fooled that you have to stop doing this or start doing that before coming to Jesus. Just come to Jesus. The stuff will get sorted out. You just have to come. But one of the problems that people face is that they don't even know that they need deliverance. They don't even know that they need rescue. It's like they're sleeping in a burning house and they have no idea that the house is burning. They are in Crescent City and an earthquake has happened way out in the Pacific and they have no idea that a tsunami is coming. But the fact of the matter is the tsunami's coming. Or the fact of the matter is even though you're asleep and you think that your house is not burning but indeed is burning, that there is a deadly set of circumstances and your ignorance of the dangerous events does not mean that you don't need the deliverance or that you don't need to be rescued. Your ignorance is not an excuse. It's going to happen. And if people come to warn you or tell you that the danger is imminent, but you don't act, you refuse it, you, you just say, like, my house is not burning. Oh, there's no tsunami. I'm, let me go back to bed. And you can keep ignoring it and keep ignoring it, but it doesn't mean that that's not true. Because it's coming. Jesus came to deliver you from your sins. And He came on a rescue mission. That's why He came 2,000 years ago. And once you're saved by someone, once you're rescued by someone, you become loyal to that person. Don't you? If someone saved your life, you're just loyal to that person. You're willing to do anything for that person. So in Jesus' rescue of you, or if you don't have that relationship with Jesus, have you accepted that rescue from Jesus? Have you received deliverance from your sins through Jesus? And if you've acknowledged by faith that Jesus has delivered you, are you willing to have an appropriate response such as thankfulness and gratefulness and loyalty to the person who rescued you? Because how does your life reflect obedience to His Word or to His instructions? Because if we're just even looking in kind of physical terms, if someone rescued you from a burning building or from drowning, or they rescued your loved one, your spouse or, or your niece or nephew, your, a child, someone who's really dear to you, how would you treat that person? Wouldn't they just be on a pedestal? Wouldn't you just be like, I adore you. I, I'll, I will do anything for you. As long as it's not illegal, immoral, or unbiblical. I will do anything for you. 
And so verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. For those of us who have been delivered, I want to encourage you to really think about this. Because if you have been delivered, how are you living in response to the deliverance? Like taking it for granted? Like, yeah, yeah, that was, that was a cool thing that he did. That's cool. I'm just going to kind of go on with my life. To have an appropriate response to your rescuer, to your Savior. Because if someone saved you, you'd love them the rest of your life. You'd be in communication with them. You'd want to know how they were doing and, and you know, what, what do you need? You know, what, what would you like? How can I serve your family? You know, you've blessed us so much. You've blessed me so much. How do I, uh, do, how am I, how do I show my gratitude towards you? Now, it ends with Amen. Now, Amen is, I think, a universal word. I think it's the most well-known word in the world. Right? Because every language that I've heard prayers in, I've been to uh, almost all the continents, I've been to many places, Amen is Amen. It may sound different, a little bit different, but it, it, it's the same. So like, for example, in Mandarin, it's Amen, right? And in Cantonese, it's Amun. So it's, those Cantonese people are kind of messed up. You can put a U in there. In like Spanish, it's Amen. <laughs> in English, Amen. Like almost any language, Swahili, uh, whatever. Afrikaans, what is in Afrikaans? You're going to throw me off, right? It's going to be like peace or something. It's, it's the same, right? And so what this word means is believe or faithful. And it has come to mean sure or truly. And it's this expression of absolute trust, absolute confidence. And so when we pray these things and we say amen, it's like we are totally faithful that God's going to answer us. We are totally faithful. We are absolutely trusting. We are absolutely, we have full confidence in what God does. And so in Oakland terms, we use a different word than amen. Our word, it's word. Word. Yeah, that's our stamp, right? That's, that's our amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for using the Apostle Paul to write these letters that we have record of now and where we can learn from, where your spirit is alive and dynamically still working in them. We ask God that you would minister to the hearts of people here, that you would touch them in special ways. Holy Spirit, we need you. Our flesh is so weak and our resources so limited but you are infinite in power. And when we want to deliver people, we have all these ideas and where you can just do it so well and so instantaneous. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be here to transform our community. Lord Jesus, that you would equip us to let people know that you are their rescuer, even if they don't know that they're in need of being rescued. May that be our mission, Lord. May we be about saving people's lives. May we be about discipling people, getting them into a closer relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.